Welcome to the Take Us to the Game podcast, a light-hearted and irreverent look at the world of sports. I'm Richard Baker, and I'm joined this week as ever by Ollie Scully. Hello. Tom Gibbs. Hi there. And from BBC World Service Business Programmes, it's Syrah Baker. Hello, thank you for having me. Now, we've had some correspondence following the last couple of episodes. Uh, Ian in Cambridge has got in touch to say, who is this chap that travels the world watching boxing and casually selling paintings at Sotheby's? Uh, <laughs> referring, of course, to our friend Adam Tor, who was on last week and will we'll be back again. But he goes on to say, I still don't get Tom's film boxing analogy. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he's not heard of the Golden Globes. Uh, <laughs> he's just a pure believer in the Oscars. It's pretty simple to me. Different organisations awarding different prizes for the same thing. Ian and Cambridge, get back in touch if that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, anyone else can get in touch at uh, editor at takeustothegame.com if you want to email us. Or you can find us at Twitter, at Facebook. Just search Take Us To The Game, all one word. Yeah, we'd like to, like to hear your thoughts. As ever, we begin with our, our sporting weeks. Uh, Ollie, what's caught your eye this week? I, I did a bit of research based on uh, one of our conversations um couple of podcasts back and I was trying to find out the identity of the mysterious centre forward that that ended my footballing career by scoring in the under 10s <laughs> cup final and so after after a, uh, quite an extensive search of the internet I managed to find some pictures of junior football teams in York and uh, sort of the York press had this archive of all these old football pictures so I went through them all just had to do it eyeball by looking at every team and I found it and it was the team I think I called them Buttercram there Ralph Butterfield was the name of the name of the score and I spotted him back right looking shifty and so I got this picture and I put it into to Google Images and I thought right I'll try and see if I can find you know similar images to track this guy down and I put this image search in and it came up with just boy and the definition (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of, of a junior juvenile male and a definition of the male of the species before they've reached the age of puberty boy <laughs> and he was it's, he seems to be the most generic person on I'm the images of you in your basement with sort of cork boards up with various pictures and string linking yeah. trying to uh, piece this all together this story doesn't hang together at all you said he was three foot six and yet you're saying he was in the back row with this photograph <laughs> That's not how photographs work. He would have been kneeling on one knee in the front row. He was stood at the back. Everyone else was kneeling so that he didn't look ridiculously small. Hang on a minute. He was three foot six, so everybody else was kneeling in the photo. Pretty much. There were there were a couple of other people that were on the also on the back row. They were towering above him. So and I suppose, given we've just done correspondence, if you played for Ralph Butterfield <laughs> in 1993 and... Uh, you may have grown, you may have not, but you want to get in touch with the show and claim that header as your own and talk us through how you, you know, had to be at the peak of your footballing powers to, you know, to get past this otherwise impenetrable defence, then please get in touch with the show. Tom, who have you been stalking from your youth? <laughs> no one. I've, I've, got, I've, I've, been, I've been focused on real sport, this I'm afraid. Um, I've been interested by the Naomi Osaka uh, business decided to bring it down slightly but I think that's really interesting um, at the French Open clearly I think there's a couple of angles to it for those who haven't been following it um, essentially requested or essentially refused to do mandatory post-match interviews after a first round win 
uh, was issued a $15,000 fine straight off the bat by the French Open authorities and then essentially kicked out of the tournament for, again, f- uh, refusing to meet mandatory uh, uh, media obligations. Now, you can say this in lots of ways, I think, and it is interesting, and I don't know if I've got a firm answer yet. You know, If you're a sports person, a professional sports person, do you have to expect some media obligations? Do you need to have a fan base? Do you need to accept your role as an entertainer? Or is there an argument here where actually you can just have leniency here? I mean, there are other sports. Golf, I think, is a good one where you know, there's no such thing as the mandatory post-round interview in, in golf bar, maybe the Masters and a few other exceptions. So um, I need to think about that one over. But I think it's painted the tennis organisation in particular in a pretty poor light. I think what was dis- what was disappointing for me was that that it, it needed a conversation to happen, you know, behind closed doors, not in you know in the public domain between between the event organisers uh, and Osaka to kind of get to the bottom of why she didn't want to do this, rather than all of that being aired in public, you know, the, the you know the slapping her with the fine, the threats of you know expulsion from the event and future Grand Slams, you know, you know all happened. You know, before she then pulled out and kind of, you know, was in a position to start talking about why it was that she didn't want to do the do the media in the first place. You know, that conversation should have been happening, you know, between the between the organisers and and her and her team, you know, before this stuff, you know, all became public. I know the premise of it, and I do agree with Ollie really that it's it's something that the the authorities involved must have been able to have a conversation with her behind closed doors as to why she didn't want to didn't want to carry on didn't want to do what she did instead of then just airing everything in public for me i don't quite know enough about it and i think Mm. you posed the debate well tom in terms of safeguarding of the athlete and their health both physical and mental but also their sort of their obligations to the tournament as well you know we all lose out by not getting to watch osaka play in this tournament yes right and you know she's a great player you know she'd be one of the favorites to win it and it feels like by digging their heels in over the media obligation, the the tournament you know loses out of one of its big big draw players. I can't feel help but feel that the you know the, the French Open authorities have you know made a made a big mistake in doing that. Um, I can I can probably think of of all the tennis matches I've ever watched and of all the post match media interviews I've ever seen. I can probably only recall maybe three of them, and they've all been where one of the players has had some sort of, you know, row or meltdown and the interview itself has been really frosty and... Usually involves Nick Kyrgios. It's Nick Kyrgios. Nick Kyrgios. I can reel them off. So there's Nick Kyrgios has been on a a number of these. Um, The uh, Bernard Tomic interview where he basically admitted that he didn't try and then didn't really try to answer any questions in the interview because... Attitude kind of continued, and the and the Joe Conter interview, where again she didn't take kindly to some of the questioning, but but those media those interviews were reported as it was a secondary story that the interview had gone badly, and therefore that became the news story. Mm-hmm. No one was watching the interview itself. The interview got replayed because it had become. Uh, you know, an argument and a tip for tap between the between the journalist present and the and the tennis player. Almost what you're saying is there's no upside for the tennis player. If, <laughs> if, if it's a perfectly pleasant interview, no one will ever remember it. But if there's a gotcha moment and they say something untoward or they they get a question they don't like and they react to it, 
then that's the thing that goes viral. So there's no yeah. upside for doing no. interviews. No, if you if you do if you give if you give a good polished um, media performance that talks about what you did well, what you likely to come up against in your next round opponent, you know, and are very measured and polite about them and say all the right things, then nobody is ever going to watch that interview. It will just be sat on a reel of tape somewhere. And I suppose my question back to Sarah might be then for the for the media point of view, if you're going yeah. to interview someone, do you want to have someone come to an interview who you know isn't actually willing to engage with it on sporting terms or is not going to be a willing participant? Or actually, you're just gonna, are you going to have some allowance for the fact that they don't want to be there? Before an interview like that takes place, you you will you will have an idea. I, as, I mean, as a media officer, that you have somebody who just does not want to be there, does not want to answer questions. What happens in the end is that both parties are thrown into that situation and you, you have to make the best of it. And unfortunately, what does happen is then what, is just a, a, a standard interview becomes the story itself. And yeah, I mean, it is it is a tricky situation, really. And it's a thing about being under, you know, obligation with your contract that you, you have to do this. And actually, how much hassle is it going to be to go to absolutely put your foot down and say, do you know what, I'm not going to do it. You take it to the lawyers, you deal with it. Was she let down by the team around her? In, in not engaging or was it the tournament organizers who should have been having those conversations I, th- I think the 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 team around her the the tournament organizers I think should have been having the conversations I think the very last resort should have been sending her out there to to do to face the media so I think ultimately it does come down to rather than the individual the team around her that's why she has them what we now see out in the public is creating the wrong story around the tournament. If the French Open organisers had played this differently mm. and the whole tournament had gone by and Naomi Osaka gets through to whatever stage she gets through to and doesn't give any, doesn't do any press, mm. the the fact that she wasn't doing press, would it would be reported on, but it would probably be just sort of a, a, throw a throwaway line within the coverage of the tournament. I don't think her not doing any press would have been a big news story. The fact that the you know the tournament organizers came out right at the start and said, mm. oh, we're gonna fine you and we're gonna threaten you with expulsion from the tournament if you don't do the press, turned it into the news story that yeah. it then became. If they just let it let it slide and said she you know it'd been agreed she's not doing any press, you know, maybe if she gets to the final she'll do the on court stuff, but Otherwise, she won't be doing any interviews you know, after every game. That would have been a news story for the first first match she played. And for the second one, there'd have been other things in the tournament to talk about. You know, some, Actually, let's talk about some tennis right, rather than talking about that again. So I, it feels like the organisers, in my mind, made a mistake by not going down that route. I do tend to agree with Ollie in terms of how it's been handled by the organisers of the tournament it has absolutely backfired on them. I think there's still a conversation about the mandatory press obligations of a professional sports person and where they can be released or relaxed and how you do that. I think that's still a conversation that I'm going to have to think about. In happier news, the weather's been wonderful this week in the UK and the test match summer has started and there is test cricket back at Lords for the first time in two years. 
we missed out on that during the pandemic year when all all the games were played at Old Trafford and the Rose Bowl. Tom, have you caught any of it? I have been watching it, yeah, pretty solidly for two days. And it's been good. It's been really good quality cricket. It's been great having the crowd back in, in there with the the gentle ripple of uh, of applause at the right times rather than on the push of a, on the push of a button and i've got to say the menus at lords look fabulous i think i was having the uh, i think i was having the noki yesterday and uh, I, I can't remember what was on for today some buffet bowling jokes added here joe root looked fairly fairly friendly <laughs> But of course, it's the, it's the Kiwis who are visiting New Zealand. Uh, they're here for a, a warm-up against England, I should say, before they play their World Test Championship final against uh, India at Lords a bit later on in the summer. New Zealand, a country close to your heart, Ollie, of course. In what sense? Do you want me to launch into some Jeremy Coning? <laughs> Rather not. <laughs> How many times do you want me to say the word uh, New Zealand? <laughs> We have been there at least. You can give, have, us a, give us a perspective have, from the Kiwi point of view. Played football with hobbits. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've had two Kiwi nannies <laughs> in my employment and I've been there. So it's a beautiful country, this country New Zealand. <laughs> I mean, they, they punch above their weight, don't they? They do. Uh, and I think I think they've been showing in the first two days of this test match quite why they're in the, the world um, world test final. They've got well, they've got everything that uh, a good good test side should have, right? They've got some batsmen that are going to stick around and big run, make big runs. They've got a middle order that can collapse at any moment to keep it interesting and make sure that <laughs> one side gets too far ahead. And they've got um, they've got some useful bowlers that I think will do pretty well in in English conditions. Actually, I've got a feeling that um, that England have probably gone in a bit like um, just having Root as their only spinner. But it'll be interesting to see how the how the two bowling attacks go on. The, what looks like a pretty good pitch in the two days of cricket that I've seen. It does, and Lords is looking spectacular with the two new stands that have gone up. Sorry, you, you missed out on a summer at Lords last year, being quite a frequent visitor. What did you miss most about not making it to a test match at Lords last year? I think, as Tom says, it was the, it was the Lords menu. I mean, you know, <laughs> what what's going to be on draft? What are you going to get in the in the food court? That you know, where where are you going to get your coffee from as soon as you go in? And I think I think for me, I mean, we as a as a family, we, we've always gone to a day of the first test match at Lords, and it's always been a ritual, really. And I think. I think what I've really missed is just I like to walk around the ground. I mean, when I worked there, it was a privilege to walk in every day. I mean, I never I always used to marvel of the fact I was walking under the arches through Grayscape past the pavilion, um, never taking that for granted because people come from all over the world to go to Lords. And I think what I really, really missed last year was just having that trip to St John's Wood for the day um, and just watching some really, really good cricket. So I think I think that's what I, I really missed last year was just just the atmosphere of the ground. I think I always think one of the unique things about Lords is just the amount of space outside of the stands. You know, having the nursery ground to go and have a picnic on and you know, there's there's just a lot more space to mingle and it feels much more of a social occasion, you know, than you know, been to a lot of other other grounds around the country, few few of the cricket grounds around the world, but n- nowhere else has got quite as much space. Given it's in you know <laughs> prime real estate in central London, the fact that all that space is around the back of the stands, I think, is part of what 
gives Lords its unique atmosphere. And I think Tom's right in talking about the that sort of background hum that you can't quite replicate uh, when the grounds are empty. But when you see it, there's people milling around and they do the shots of the concourses that you really get that sort of you know test match hum that's unique. Yeah, yeah you get a hum at, at Headingley as well, you know, <laughs> but it's a slightly different hum, <laughs> particularly as the afternoon wears on. Um, but yeah, the the morning lords. It's a, it is a unique sound. If you could bottle that up, that is English summer. There was a a, a unique noise this afternoon when Mitch Santner managed to put a beamer. <laughs> I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> an off spin beamer somewhere just to the uh, to the right of Joe Root's head, which he <laughs> flashed at somehow over top of slip. And the noise that came out of the crowd for that was not on any sound editor's mixing board. The kind of delivery I would normally get out to, but uh, <laughs> Joe Root managed to navigate it. I mean, in a sense, we're we're lucky that New Zealand have made it over. The Test cricket world, you look at the principal nations that have played Test cricket, England, the West Indies, South Africa, you know, the Asian subcontinent, then Australia, New Zealand, all at very different places uh, when it comes to the pandemic. Australia and New Zealand have made the decision to more or less quarantine themselves, whereas you know India have obviously had a, a huge uptick in cases last over the last sort of month or two. We, we almost take it for granted that international cricket teams are crisscrossing the world, playing each other in these series of tours. Do you think that carries on going forward, Tom? I, I, I do, yes. I think there's still an allure to the tour as a principle. And I think the reason that is, is because cricket is more than other games, a function of where it is played. So, you know, the conditions in England are very different from the conditions in Queensland or in, in, in the subcontinent. And, you know, that is that is an aspect of the game. If you want to prove yourself the best, you need to be able to pro- prove yourself there. You know, I I think it's genuinely cool how much stick Stuart Board gets from <laughs> certain fan bases out there for not being able to replicate his bowling all around the world. I don't think that's fair at all. But if he wants to answer those criticisms, well, the upcoming Ashes Tour in Australia is the perfect opportunity to take... 70% of David Warner's wickets again. I thought you were going to talk about the, crit- the criticism he gets for being Stuart Broad. It's <laughs> 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 bad enough. Yeah. But no, you need to be able to do it in all those conditions. So therefore, you need to tour. I think the idea of, you know, having all of the games in Dubai doesn't do it for me. Let's, let's move it around. The one thing that would be interesting is if there's now lengthy quarantines at the start of any kind of touring period are kind of going to be the norm for the foreseeable future i wonder whether there's scope for getting a few more games in that aren't the test series when we first started watching test crickets you know the side would come over and would tour you know play the test matches would also you know play you know warmed up against some of the um some of the counties would go on and play counties after after the test series has ended the 93 australians played all 18 first-class counties. That was the last time it happened. But, yeah, they, they played nearly 30 games on that tour. Yeah. Our, one of my earliest cricket memories is going to watch the uh, Indian touring party, which contained a young Sachin Dendulkar, play, um, play Yorkshire at the Scarborough Festival. And that was back in the day when you could just hop over the boundary at, um, at the tea interval and go and get a few autographs. <laughs> There's good cricketing reasons for doing those those warm-up games, which they just seem to not ha- make the time for now. I think that it's not just a case of acclimatisation. It's about playing good quality teams to get uh, get ready for the conditions. But also, I think there's good sporting reasons as well. And it's about meeting the country. 
that you're a part of, about socialising, about going out. And you see some of the sort of pictures of Tony Grieg in the subcontinent in the late 70s and that, you know, going around on tuk-tuks and that. Uh, you know, you're not going to see it these days, but that is, you know, influential for the growth of the game. It's an interesting point you make. I, I listened to an interview with Jimmy Anderson recently where he was comparing going to India under lockdown you know for the behind the closed door series and he was making the point that actually it's not that different from when he tours India anyway because they tend to do training ground hotel you know stadium and at a repeat and they don't really see the country so Zara I mean you worked for the English cricket board and you know quite a few players who who go on these tours mm. do the players look forward to them are they are they at, or are they sort of an occupational hazard it, well it's their job um, you know I think I think it it, it becomes the same sort of routine really wherever they go to that they they are shuttled around it pandemic aside in their own bubble um so when i mean i i had the great fortune to go to india in 2012 to kolkata um i was there in a part professional capacity but i watched that test match a historic test match but we were in the same hotel as the team and they they don't leave the hotel they do not leave the hotel um, until they have to go for training and they don't leave w- leave without chaperones. So I can see what James Anderson is saying there, that, that it's from one bubble to another. So actually playing cricket in lockdown and travelling as they did, you, you don't go there to go and to go and see the country I know what Ollie's saying about actually you know experiencing the culture which you do to an extent but you 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 you're on very strict guidelines and certainly we saw that in the hotel we were on the team team floor where we were staying um security things everywhere and you they cannot leave I think the 2012 India tour Mm. was not that long after the the Mumbai attacks no which I think had been five years previous and I think even today, and obviously you had the attack on the Sri Lankan team bus in Pakistan. So I think there's always been a level of heightened security around touring teams in the subcontinent. You followed England not only in to India. I mean, is it the same in South Africa? Is it the same in, in the Caribbean? Or are they, they tend to be a little bit more relaxed? when they Yeah, so, a- so actually you're right. Thinking about that. So in, in India in 2012, in Calcutta, I know that the security there was was more more heightened but in Barbados uh, I, I wasn't in that same environment actually seeing them in the hotel we stayed somewhere separately but actually we did see some of the players out with their families going for dinner I don't know the same for Cape Town that was an amazing that was probably the best test match I've been to abroad really um, I didn't get the impression that security was as stringent there certainly didn't feel it around Newlands I know India was was the one place where it was just very very strict I mean you're talking about police with with mirrors going looking under the cars and I know I mean there was one player Nick Compton who who was in the side at that time he dad knew him through work at Lord's um and he 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 mentioned to Nick that um, him and, you know, mum had been out and they'd been to the Victoria Memorial and it was brilliant. And then we heard the next day, this was via somebody on, on the, you know, the team administration. He got in, Nick had got into quite a lot of trouble because he had taken himself out to go and have a look um, <laughs> because he said, you know, security had to go and literally bustle him back into the hotel 
and he saw he saw us in the bar and he was like, I tried to go and do that, but I couldn't. Rare attacking foray from Nick Compton. Well, it was. Well, it was. It was almost like he was trying to make a break, uh, a break for cultural freedom. But yes, his crease. Talking about it now, I mean that you know that's how strict they were. Otherwise, they're going to want to do it as well. But then, yeah. He could have taken his bat with him because he didn't use it for much else. Yeah. But, you know, in terms of those three places, very, very different. Um, and I, I, I should imagine the, the players in, in Barbados and Cape Town had had a different experience from 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 Kolkata at that time in 2012. So the, the players live is a very sheltered existence on tour. But one of the key selling points of cricket is that and then something that's threatened at the minute by the inability to travel is that large amounts of people go on holiday to follow it. Um, you watched England in the ashes. You weren't staying in the hotel 24-7, were you? Uh, no, I, uh, <laughs> I certainly wasn't. And as you say, you know, following following cricket overseas is uh, is one of the you know the, the great experiences I think because you um you kind of out and you get obviously get to mingle with other with other cricket fans who are generally few exceptions you know a sort of a pretty friendly and sort of hospitable bunch and everybody's there kind of to have a good time and it's it's not like going to watch football you know as an away fan you know where you know that there's going to be aggro going to watch cricket overseas it's kind of it's a big it's a big party <laughs> in whichever town you know the cricket has rolled around to. <laughs> yeah, the only complaint I have had about watching uh, watching the Ashes um, in in Australia was that. Um, yeah, it's a surprise to me. <laughs> uh, that, no, the two complaints. <laughs> you've, you've nailed the first one. The second complaint was the was the strength of the beer because ordinarily <laughs> at the cricket you can have a number of beers over the course of the day and the the, the wittering drone coming from the seat next to you kind of subsides into the sort of beery froth <laughs> but the beer is very weak at the uh, at the australian cricket and um i think we had to resort to going and finding the wine bar to try and top up the levels of alcohol because the the vb gold was not touching the sides i do remember going to the pims tent and trying to take a pims back into uh, the seating area at the gather and uh, an Australian steward saying, oh, no, mate, no wow. pins in there. <laughs> yeah, what were we going to do with it? <laughs> Was that for your own protection? <laughs> may well have been. Yeah, I think I'd like to see more touring teams do, you know, play a few of the smaller clubs, get around the place, be a bit more human. Because going back to, where, you know, that thing about Lords and being able to walk around, mm. there is every chance you're going to meet the great and the good of the game as well. You know, number of times I've been walking around outside Lords, you know, kind of giving tough as a wave, Phil Tuffnell yeah. or Jeffrey Boycott and whatever. I didn't give him a wave, I gave him something else. <laughs> <laughs> I was scared, scared the life out of Aravinda de Silva when I saw him in the lift, just shouted his name. <laughs> to get them. He was sort of frantically pressing the button. He was quite getting at the time. I just to squeeze myself in and shake his hand. It's like the time I met Stephen Hendry on an elevator. An escalator, sorry. <laughs> I've already dragged that story out. Anyway, I saw Stephen Henry going down an escalator. I just waved at him like a lunatic. I couldn't walk down or run down that escalator quick enough. So when you say you met. Yes. <laughs> Stretching the definition of met. Yeah, I'm easily impressed. 
we're, while we're talking about lifts and elevators, though, and I'll, uh, she says, harping back to that infamous 2012 trip to, to India. Uh, so there was a volleyball tournament going on at the same time in Kolkata. And I found myself in the morning in the lift going down um, to the ground floor and I was standing in between Sachin Tendulkar and Kevin Peterson. KP who I just knew to say hello to but Sachin Tendulkar I didn't. How's the volleyball relevant? Well here we go so the, li- so the, the lift opened um, before the ground floor and quite a, a small but lively gaggle of of uh tourists from from japan i think got in um i remember they were very short there was me there was me and then there was sachin who was a bit taller and then kevin peterson all the way up there and then this gaggle of tourists and they looked because we all had like i had my england training top on and we all looked like we were gonna go out to do something sporting and they turned around to us all and went, oh, you're, you're doing the volleyball too. <laughs> and I just stood there because I was already dumbfounded standing in between the two great players. And I remember Kevin Peterson just looking at Sash and Tedork and going, yeah, that's right. That's right. Me and Sash, we're going off to do the volleyball. We'll see you there. And we all got out. And I was just like, oh, my goodness me. And just it, that was the most surreal moment ever. And I just wanted to go up to these tourists and say, do you realise who you've just spoken to? They're not volleyball players. No offence to volleyball players. There you go. Still think Kevin Peterson thought he was the best player in that lift. <laughs> thought he was, but there you go, yeah. What was, K- what was KP like? But I mean, he comes across as a bit of an abrasive character. Is he is he all right in person? Yeah, I he he was always um he was always very friendly, spoke to everybody. Um I didn't know him terribly well, but no knew him, I guess, as an ECB colleague to say hello to. As a fan, I I thought he was a fantastic player. I, I do have um, a few shirts with number 24, Peterson, on the back. I don't wear them in public anymore because, you know, I, I don't know how that would be taken. But he, he was he was always really great to chat to. You know, you take out the equation everything that, that went on since. I think... Um, I think he's one of the the greatest players really that England's had and that I've 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 seen play. I mean, you know, you Richard, you you were at the Oval during the Ashes 2005, weren't you? So you saw you saw him at, at his best then as well. So I think the, what was so incredible about that innings is that England were five down at lunch and mm. the Ashes were in the balance. And I think it was you know, Sean Tate was bowling 90 plus and and short stuff as well. And and Peterson just took him on. Mm. Uh, I think he ended up hitting sort of three or four sixes, and he, he, he's hitting sixes to bouncers when England are trying to save the game. And it was just that level of aggression. I'm not just going to stand here and block. You know, I'm the best form of defence is attack. Um, never quite seen anything like it. That, yeah, I think that was still probably his best best innings in an England shirt. I'm disappointed but I, I, that the uh, that the lift story doesn't end with Peterson <laughs> challenging Tendulkar to a. <laughs> To a shirts off game of volleyball on the beach somewhere well, to try and settle who was the greatest test batsman. Like a, you... the top guy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> who's partnering Sachin? Who's partnering KP? In that KP, do you know Tim? Tim Bresnan was in the side <laughs> then. I'd say I'd, I'd put Tim Bresnan in. Why not? He, he looks like he could play volleyball well. Um, Sachin, who would Steve, I put with Steve Sachin? Finn. I think. Dravid would do all the would do all the hard work. <laughs> 
he'd be he'd be having his face in the sand digging it out while Sashin would eventually tap it down. Yeah, I'm taking Curtly Ambrose. <laughs> it was quite interesting digging out some of the uh, the history of cricket tours and how far mm. back they go. I didn't realise until you told me, Tom, that the the uh, one of the first ever international sports matches of any kind was a cricket match between two countries you might not necessarily suspect. It is officially, I believe, the, the first, as you say, international sporting fixture, 1844, and between United States and Canada in cricket, um, which, as you say, is slightly surprising even when I found that out today. But essentially, where Bloomingdale's is now, if you know Manhattan at all, central New York was a cricket ground, St. George's Club. Uh, and this was in the early days of organised sports of any kind, and clearly the early days of New York as a city. But they had a symbiotic sort of relationship with baseball. And the the cricket team that were playing out of St. George's, mostly English types who happened to be in the, in the city, um, got invited up to play a game in Toronto against the club team by a Mr. Philpotts. And they went up to Toronto, which I think took about five days in them with their 18-man squad. And it was, just, it was a complete hoax. I was going to say, I think anybody who's played club cricket has been in this situation where, where you turn up and there's no opposition yeah this it is it is a it is a, a, a cricket classic turning up to find their opera the fact that it happened in the very first international <laughs> cricket match so yeah they turn up they turn up and the whole thing is a fraud but then the they do hastily manage some sort of cricket match i guess they go around the local pubs or something and turf out some soaks uh, and they get a brass band and some spectators and it all goes actually rather well the new york club win by 10 wickets and anyway the canadians say well we'll come and play you next in new york but let's make it an international fixture and so actually what they do they do quite a good job of digging out amongst the Canadian teams and the American teams, representative international cricket teams. And they have this match, meant to be a two-day match in on this ground in central Manhattan. Ends up being three days because the second day is essentially rained off. First innings, I believe um, Canadians put up 82 off 32 overs. So that's my kind of scoring rate. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> US respond with 64. Canadians put up 63 and the US fell short on their chase with 58. So 20,000 people turned up for this game. And this predates the first uh, England tour of Australia, I think, by about four years. It does, yes. I, don't, I have no idea what the population of New York would have been at that time. That sounds like, I don't know. like every man and his dog was a cricket match. I did see that there was $100,000 wagered on this game. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is entirely in line with current betting rates, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so ultimately, yeah, this international tour, tour, one match, uh, de- demonstrate, demonstrates the financial possibility, I suspect. Because <laughs> on, on an article talking about it, there was a clipping. Um, talking about just I thought you were going to say clip. That's going to be <laughs> 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 adventurous. <laughs> I'm, sure how, I'm not sure how authentic it is. That uh, talking about sort of the history of cricket in New York that dates from 1751 from the New York uh, Gazette, which said last Monday a match was played on the common for a considerable wager by 11 Londoners against 11 New Yorkers played by the London method. Well, essentially, the New Yorkers got 81, Londoners got 43, then New York second innings got 86 and then London only got 37. So England being terrible overseas has been going on for <laughs> the best part of 250 years. Well, one can only assume that by the, by the London method, they mean 
uh, playing a bit of cricket and then gorging themselves on an enormous tea <laughs> to the point at which they, they can't really perform after that. So I did I did read with this, actually, that there was a rather, I don't know if he was the landlord of the place, Burroughs, I think, but he had a wife known as Dame Burroughs, who was quite a buxom lady and her daughter, and they actually managed to keep control of the whole event, provide what would be equivalent to a cricket tea. And she's she's been mentioned in dispatches a few times. So I don't know if she was sort of the precursor to cricket teas as well. Um, but apparently all the players were very happy. So there we go. Yeah, 160 years ago or whatever, but there was a, a cricket field, there was a pub and there were bookies. So yeah. not a lot has changed. Food, yeah. But you, did, you did mention Australia, Tom, and England did go to Australia. But the first Australian team who then came to England for a tour was actually an entirely Aboriginal team. That was put together in 1867 and came across in 1868. Um, and they actually ended up playing over a course of six months. They won 14, drew 19, lost 14, which is quite respectable and were kind of quite highly regarded for their achievements. They even came up against a, a young W.G. Grace. But in 1869, then the Governor General of Australia you know, forbade you know, Aborigines from leaving the colony of Victoria and the whole thing was disbanded. But you know, interesting to know that the, it was actually a and our Aboriginal team who were the first ones to come across. It's a fascinating piece of history, but kind of one that I think only in the last sort of, sort of 10, 10, 20 years has really been sort of dug out of the out of the history books. It feels like it sort of it was just you know it was sort of lost on kind of everybody's everybody's consciousness for you know for best you know, best part of 150 years. And I think good that it's kind of finally been acknowledged. I think the the guys have sort of been recognised as part of you know sort of the history of Australian cricket now and kind of inducted to the kind of Australian sort of cricketing hall of fame, but yeah, you know, only took them 150 <laughs> years really to get the acknowledgement they were due. Yeah. I think, I think they were all given cat numbers and everything subsequent. Excellent. So as amateur sportsmen, have you ever found yourself on a sports tour, Ollie? I, I certainly have. I was fortunate enough to, um, to travel to, to the West Indies, to, uh, to Barbados, to um, play three games of cricket out there. This was in 2009, so it was the same time as England were out there touring, and um, I think they, I think they copied us. <laughs> we didn't specifically go to watch the cricket, although we did end up taking in uh, one of the um, one of the uh, uh, England uh, West Indies 50 over games. But now I played uh, played three games out there um, in in March of 2009. First, sort of the most underprepared. I think it's possible to be. I think we we possibly organised a net at the end of the summer <laughs> when we were in preparation before we sort of rolled away the, the the covers and the pitch for the end of the year. So we sort of had a net in September and then off we went in March. So I I think I came back with a batting average of four. <laughs> having having so it's, trouble, it's, it's not bad for you. <laughs> yeah, I only troubled the scorers once. <laughs> Um, which was probably just as well because one of the things we failed to take on the tour was a scorebook. <laughs> so I'd love to be able to tell you all the teams that we played, you know, be able to run down the list of all the sort of up-and-coming West Indies players that I that I got to face, and all those illustrious names that um, that meant I only had a batting average of four. <laughs> but unfortunately, they're lost to you know, lost to, to the history books. I can I've only got the memories. And a few of the bruises to show for show for that tour. Thank you, Tom. So the one that comes to mind is probably nothing to do with the sport, though. I did a bit of a Nick Compton. I was in the, 
I was with a football team and we we got out to Brittany uh, and we essentially we were there a couple of days before the before the match that we were going to play against this team and uh, I'd sort of broken curfew, gone down to the local uh, the local bar, the local tabac bar, and having a few having a few pasties and. Uh, <laughs> My mate and I befriended a couple of the locals, and they said, "Why don't you come to this house party?" And so we got we got into this car. It was about midnight already, and they drove us off into the middle of nowhere, no idea where we were going, into this huge, great chateau. And they're like, "You guys are English," and we go, "Yeah." And okay, uh, you uh, these these people won't like the English. You have to pretend to be Irish. <laughs> okay, uh, and I, I was like, "Okay, who are these?" Who are these people? These are very big people in uh, the Breton nationalist scene. And like, so essentially, these were really shady criminals who were sort of semi, semi-involved freedom fighters for the Breton nationalist party or whatever it's called. Anyway, we went in and this party was kicking off. It was good, you know, there was a lot of vodka, you know, ice sculpture. It was very classy. And we got, we got introduced as, I don't know, Paddy O'Shea. <laughs> And I was like, there, top of the morning to you. <laughs> Absolutely. Already had a fair too few too many drinks at this point. But anyway, the, 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 the head, the honcho, the, the don of the family sort of grabs hold of us and goes, we have a lot in common with your Irish sentiments or whatever. And takes us off to this sort of VIP area where he then proceeds to fill me with more drinks and then introduce me to his daughter with the idea that I might, you know, there might be some sort of, international mutual arrangement i suspect (laughs) (laughs) anyway freedom fighters of the world unite (laughs) i don't know i don't know what he thought we were i can't quite remember a lot of the data anyway somehow we break free of this place order a taxi to the middle of nowhere not sure how it happened and get back in time for training the next morning but uh i was fairly quickly put on the bench for that game uh when it did come out (laughs) one touring memory is of uh going to norfolk for a for a cricket tour and we took a slightly larger i think 13 or 14 of us went so we ended up playing 12 aside games so everyone could play in each of the games and in the first match of the tour i got put on the opposition (laughs) i wasn't particularly particularly happy about but you know fair enough and they gave me a chance to have a bowl and for people don't know me i don't really do much bowling but got a chance to bowl at my teammates i ended up getting a few of them out To, uh, to their consternation, which meant in the second innings, having thought they were just going to get some lollipops from me and I'd actually sort of got them out, I then came out to bat for the opposition against my own team. And uh, the abuse that I received <laughs> in about five minutes was, yeah, it set me up for a... Uh, Set me up for life, actually. You know, nothing could be quite as bad as that. As well as the celebrations when they got me out. You'd have thought they'd won the World Cup. <laughs> it, was, it was cartwheels in the outfield. <laughs> what, age, what, what age were you when this was taking place? I was like 14, 15. <laughs> were, they, were they pointing you back to the pavilion and all of that? Well, they were, fingers were coming out. I'm not sure. <laughs> you get a send-off, a salute. <laughs> it did indeed, yeah. Not quite like Sheldon Cottrell. <laughs> Syrah, Tom, Ollie, thanks very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Take care.